This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though. You always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, alternative media for discerning minds. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members for your loyalty and support. Tonight's special guest is a Veritas veteran. Whenever we need a scientist with an open mind, our special guest has always been there for us. Dr. Brooks Agnew will discuss 2012, a possible pole shift, the animal die-offs, the Gulf oil spill, harp, consciousness, and much more. Brooks Agnew will be with us shortly. To listen to tonight's interview and all our interviews, become a member. You'll receive instant access to all of them. And remember, Veritas survives on your voluntary subscriptions only. So if you've been listening to the first segment of the show for some time, don't you think it's time to listen to the entire show and support our work? Just visit our website, VeritasShow.com, click on the subscribe link, and take Veritas with you. And you can now download the latest show via the iTunes link. That simple. And I want to thank all of you 
who voted and continue to vote to keep Veritas in the top 10 position and the top paranormal site of the world. And I also appreciate all the wonderful comments you've left that really humbled me. And if you haven't visited the Veritas store, check it out. You can buy lots of products there, including the new 8GB metal case USB drive filled with Season 2, the best music of 2010, the Paul Benowitz letters, and NASA footage that they don't want you to see and we're not supposed to release. Season 1 is still available too. You can also buy both USB drives with Season 1 and 2 and save on shipping. Just go to the Veritas store and place your order. You can also order MMS and your favorite health products right there. And this is the last reminder about the upcoming International UFO Congress taking place next week from February 23rd to the 27th in Fountain Hills, Arizona. I'll be there and hope to meet those of you who will be attending. I will try to bring back as many interviews as possible for audio and Veritas TV. I hope to see you there. must have been the stress of stepping down that put not one, but two deposed Middle East dictators, allies of the U.S., in a coma, a comatose state. On February 16th, news reports from the Middle East stated Hosni Mubarak's death could come at any time. Mubarak purportedly in a comatose state. And just when you thought things could not get more bizarre, listen to this. Today, the Jerusalem Post reports the post-Tunisian president is in a coma. The French Daily reports that Ben Ali had a stroke, is comatose in a special hospital for Saudi royals in, quote, worrying condition. What a coincidence. Both Ben Ali and Hosni Mubarak, the post-Middle East dictators, shortly after stepping down, both purportedly in a coma. Perhaps in response to the brave new world, created by Tunisian and Egyptian protests. Ben Ali and Mubarak are relying on Aldous Huxley's formula for a graceful exit. Quote, Ignore death up to the last moment. Then, when he can't be ignored any longer, have yourself squirted full of morphia and shuffle off in a coma. Thoroughly sensible, humane, and scientific, eh? Unquote. Suggests a character in Huxley's Time Must Have a Stop. In a region that believes shark attacks to be evidence of a Mossad plot, a conveniently timed coma is hardly a stretch. Or perhaps having left impoverished countries, Mubarak and Ben Ali left themselves into an actual coma. In any case, Mubarak and Ben Ali are out. The people's voice has been heard. Of course, the question remains, now what? Let's hope that in their supposedly dreamy state, Mubarak and Ben Ali won't have the last laugh. Now, what are the chances that two dictators, former United States puppets, would leave office and immediately see their lives come crashing down like this? Are they being silenced because they knew too much? Or are they redeeming their tickets to an underground base or arc? Or perhaps this is a new lease to whatever life they have left. Could those in control be preparing the impression they want the world to have that these people are terminally ill and will soon die? This sounds suspicious, like Enron's Ken Lay, 
and Germany's Hitler. Some say they didn't die. If you need to get in touch with me, just go to our website and click on the contact button and join me on Facebook. And now, get ready to discuss a multitude of topics ranging from the animal die-offs, a possible pole shift, 2012, the extreme weather, and how consciousness plays a large part. This, many more topics, including current world events, with Dr. Brooks Agnew, who's coming up next. This is Mel Fambergas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to The Veritas Show. Dr. Brooks A. Agnew was one of the most successful scientists with ground probing radar technology in the nation for oil and gas exploration. Similar technology is currently utilized in the Mars Express program. He is the author of thousands of technical papers, seminars, documentaries, and books on precision measurement and exploration into the mysteries of the universe and of the Earth. He is the host of X Squared Radio, and you can listen to his great show by visiting x2-radio.com every Sunday. Some of his books include The Ark of Millions of Years, Volume 2, 2012, and The Harvest of the End Time, and his latest book, Remembering the Future, The Physics of the Soul and Time Travel. And what a great time to bring back a Veritas veteran who can enlighten us about all the interesting things that are happening right now. Dr. Brooks Agnew. Hello, Brooks, and welcome to Veritas. Welcome back, actually. How are you? Oh, very good. Very good. Thank you so much, for Mel, uh, Mel, for having me on the program. It's my pleasure, and I'm so glad that we finally met last year at James Gilliland's uh, East City Ranch. Are you planning to attend this year? Oh, sure. Yeah, whether I speak or not, I'm going to attend. It's, uh, that is a landmark uh, event for me. And it was a landmark moment for me because, as I told the audience, I had never experienced a UFO sighting. And that was the very first time. So because of you, once again, I was there and I hope to be back this year. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, great. We'll do it together. And maybe we'll bring all of our listeners as well. You know, they sold out last year. So we're they did. Mow more grass this year. Get a bigger group. <laughs> Excellent. Well, right from the start, I'm going to mention something I've been thinking for quite some time so we can get to the news right away. If you look at the United States debt, and this is something that I get a lot of emails about, uh, Brooks, and I'm sure many other countries are doing the same. They are writing checks for amounts that do not exist. Our national debt matches our entire economy, which means we will never, and let me, be, let me highlight the word never, underline it, bold it, whatever you want, unless we expect a windfall of money coming our way, or we simply won't satisfy that debt. It sounds to me, Brooks, that it will be the latter and not the former. 
We've had Dr. Richard Souter on the show a few times talking about underground facilities. I say this in almost every show. I used to work in a Fortune 100 company before, and one of my clients used to be Bechtel. They've been building underground facilities for decades. And you know why I'm asking you this. With all the, the polar shift 2012 coming, what's your take on what's happening with the United States and all this debt and any correlation with what may be expected? Well, you know, as, as that's a great question. When we put our research together, my, my co-author, E.J. Clark, is an archaeologist and, uh, and a medical professional. And I've been in commercial science and engineering my whole life. When we pooled our two uh, libraries of research and started comparing notes, the ancients put together what was their best interpretation of what was going to happen in this day. And then when we started lacing really cutting-edge physics and astrophysics and even cosmology over what the ancients said was going to happen, these were events that weren't fantasy. They weren't made up. They were something that was really going to happen to them. And the question came down was, well, is it really going to happen for us? So we went to the resources that I guess everyone else would go to. Let's go to NASA. Let's go to JPL. Let's go to the UMITSAT and, and other organizations and see what they're doing. What are they investing in? What are they putting up in space? And what are they concerned with? And when we put down the list of projects and there are multi-hundreds of them, almost a thousand of them in the last decade. Every single one of them lines up. You would think, oh, this is for uh, a viewing Earth and for Earth surveillance and for national security, this and that. It isn't. They're all looking out to space. They're looking for near-Earth objects. They're looking for perhaps Nibiru. But one thing is for sure. They're investing not Millions, not billions, trillions of dollars, multinational trillions of dollars to build shelters for who? For you, for me? Uh, I doubt that very seriously. I don't have my voucher. It's for the elite. But for us, they're building massive migration camps and massive bulk coffins spread out all over the country, especially across the south here. They are expecting something, and they are not telling us what it is. So if you watch what they're spending their money on, not only to space research, but also, as you said, Bechtel digging all these underground facilities, and then you couple it with the fact that they're writing checks, there is no way they can make good. Like there's no tomorrow. Maybe, to them, there isn't a tomorrow. That's my take on it. If indeed this is true and the elite has bought their survival ticket, will they be safe underground? Uh, it's difficult to tell, but I would like them to get in it now. Go ahead. We know about it. Just move all your stuff in it now. Go ahead and get set up. Get in there, close the door, and leave the rest of the earth to us. Let's do it now while you have time. You know, here's one of the reasons why I like to talk to Brooks, because we can talk about everything, about any topic. And a couple of interesting things that I've learned in the past few days, Brooks. Have you heard any, anything about former Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak being in a coma immediately after leaving Cairo? Yes, I heard that, and uh, my sources say don't believe it. Well, then today, 
and I have several. This is media, international media, and not a rumor. A media outlet reporting that the deposed Tunisian president Ben Ali had a stroke and is now in a coma. And this is not hearsay. You can see it in a bunch of newspapers, and even Le Mans in France is reporting it today. Well, it sounds like somebody, somebody's putting something in the drink of these leaders that are being deposed right and left. Uh, doesn't have anything to do with Hosni Mubarak absconding with $70 billion of Egyptian money. Right. Well, I don't believe in coincidences, but what do you make of this? Were they silenced or did they make it to their quote-unquote arc? <laughs> well, that's a good question. Did they make it to the arc uh, with their money? And are they just waiting for the end time to come, which is now, what, a little over a year away, according to the Mayan calendar? Or have they been paid hush money for so many decades that they know so many secrets they cannot allow them to survive? Exactly. And as you mentioned, it is estimated $70 billion. If the United States, in his 30 years of incumbency as, as, as uh, president, we were sending them $1.5 billion. You may adjust that for inflation. That means that he was stealing every single penny plus $300 million from the people. What in the world are we doing sending so much money that lands in their own pocket? Well, it's to keep them from going to war, and it's to allow us to fly over their airspace. That's what we were paying for is ingress and egress for our, for our military. I can tell you, because I just returned from Cairo just before this occurred, <laughs> that they have used none of the money in the last... I, I was there uh, almost four years ago, and then I went just a, a few weeks ago. And uh, I can tell you, none of the money has been used to clean up anything. The right. canals are still choked with trash and rubbish. People are still living in a millennia-old cemetery in the middle of town because there are not, of, not enough apartments for people to rent. And this is not Tunisia. Tunisia is no. about 11 million people. This is about 85 million people. Yeah, this is, a, this is a city of 20 million people that doesn't have so much as a traffic light or a stop sign. That's just incredible. But going back to, to 2012 and the possibility of, of Nibiru, during my conversation with the late Zachariah Sitchin, we discussed that, that NASA astronomers have found the so-called 10th planet in our solar system and are so sure about it that the only thing left is to name it. I asked him if this was Nibiru and why this information wasn't public. And he said the question should be, what will be the consequences if it is admitted? Have you looked into this? Well, yeah, I did some research. Uh, I didn't go as deep as I, I wanted to because I didn't have enough time. But uh, I can tell you that the, the probability exists. I didn't think so for a long time. I thought maybe Zachariah Sitchin was making things up. I never read his books, but uh, I can tell you that uh, it, it's an interesting prospect. When I finally began to scientifically consider it, at least from an astrophysical point of view, and I'm not an astrophysicist, but I, I'm not, nonetheless interested in the subject, mm -hmm. uh, I, I, what I found was a very significant mathematical probability of what we call free-floating planets. Actually, it's about 10 to the 15th free-floating planets in our galaxy. That's what they estimate. Now, what's a free-floating planet? That's a planet that's not in orbit around a sun. 
And when I looked at the way that NASA and all the amateurs have been looking for planets over the last 50 years, it has been to first locate a star and then study that star over a period of time for perturbations, for movements or tugs on that star that are done by planets going around it. And if you're really good, you have really good optics, you can look at the star long term and you get lucky enough the planet will cross across the face of the sun and you get to measure the drop in light. This will tell you how large that planet is and how often it goes around the sun so you can tell what its mass is. So for 50 years, we found about 13, 14 planets. Since the launch of Kepler, they found about 250 planets, but... They're still doing it the old-fashioned way. They're still looking for stars and looking for planets around those stars. They're not looking for free-floating planets. Now, some friends of mine and I, now they're fairly well-informed, and I said, okay, let's assume that we have, for all intents and purposes, a free-floating planet. It's in a very large orbit around our sun, and maybe it goes around Sirius and comes back. That's for all intents and purposes, a free-floating planet. There's no solar radiation getting to that thing except about every 1,500 years. Would it have enough heat on perhaps the inside of the planet to support life? The answer is yes. With radioactive decay, similar to what we have on Earth, not enough to extinguish life on the surface, but certainly enough to create fissionable heat to melt rock and thus create a thermal layer moving through the planet it would be enough to warm the inside of the planet for hundreds of thousands of years, perhaps millions of years. You could support life on the inside of a planet. In fact, if you look at all the planets that Kepler has found, a very small fraction have liquid water on the surface of them. One of Saturn's own moons, Enceladus, has fresh water, effervescent fresh water like an artesian well, all underneath the crust of that planet, and occasionally it geysers out into space. That's how they discovered it. But that water most likely contains life because it's liquid. And allegedly, this planet moves in an elliptical orbit, a huge elliptical orbit. But if it's moving so fast, can we actually see it? Or would it be too late once we get to see it? And even if we see it, if it will be cataclysmic, what could we possibly do to mitigate it if it's a global killer? Well, that, that's three questions in one. So let me let me tackle the first one first. Uh, we physicists believe that there's a speed limit in the universe, and uh, it's a little difficult to disprove, and that is the speed of light. Mm -hmm. We have uh, a fairly good uh, axiom now that the universe is expanding and the rate of expansion is increasing. And because of that, there are galaxies and clusters of galaxies that we will never see because they're moving away from us so fast that their light will never reach us. With those two points of fact, we can then conclude that there are planets that are moving toward us or stars or galaxies that are moving toward us so fast that we will only see their light right before they arrive physically. If this is the case, if Nibiru is traveling at, say, 0.6 or 0.5 or 0.4 light speed, it could visibly appear, and remember, we're only going to see it after our sun's light reflects off of it, which means it's got to be within 80 or 90 million miles, and uh, 
And if it's arriving at that speed, we're only going to see it a few days before it's actually here. Even if it were weeks or months, what could we possibly do? And what kind of effects would it have when it comes close to us? Well, there's two things, two ways we can do things. We can do things physically and we can do things non-physically. I was going to say spiritually, but it's much broader than that. Physically, we could dig a hole in the ground, say 3,000 feet down. We could build ourselves, uh, we have all the time in the world, all the money in the world, we could build ourselves a Hilton down there with spas and, and hydroponics and all kinds of food storage. We could survive for 20 or 30 years under the ground. We could do that. Most of us don't have that kind of money. We might buy a fiberglass shelter and put it about 20 or 30 feet below the ground. Uh, that's going to be pretty much useless if what happens Uh, what I think is going to happen, happens. More than likely, the reason that we have 7 billion souls here on the earth at this time, and the reason that the earth is at its location in the galactic uh, precession, is because there's a symbiotic relationship between the consciousnesses that are here and the earth. We work together. There's a consciousness of the planet, and there's a consciousness of the souls on the planet, And Mel, we're not all from here. Some of us come from other worlds to here, to be born into mortal bodies. So we bring that consciousness to bear. We're here for this event, and it's going to occur in one lifetime. So if that's the case, and I believe that it is, then our consciousness can intertwine or entangle with the planet's consciousness, and we can actually turn the events to whatever it is we desire. If we desire a cataclysm... That's exactly what the prophets saw. If we desire a paradise and we can move away from that Armageddon-like view, we can do that as well. So you think that intention, prayer, intention, has a lot to do with this? In other words, with so much fear, movies, 2012, fear-mongering that the media has, so many people's psyches focusing on the fear part. You think we may be the ones making it happen just because that's what we're focusing on as opposed to not thinking about it and thinking it's going to be December 22nd, 2012. It's going to be just another day. Yeah, I, I would agree. But, you know, when we see, uh, and I believe it was over a million people that, that poured into the square in Cairo, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. when we see people come out with no pitchforks, no shovels, no bottles, They're not pushing over cars. They're not breaking windows. They're not looting. I mean, there was some looting, but it wasn't these people that came out and did this. Asian provocateurs. Exactly. There, there were people that took advantage of the situation and looted stores, but it wasn't these people. And what was interesting is while I was watching Fox News, I'll just throw this in parenthetically, the commentator was saying, oh, the people are so angry. They're out here. You know, we're, we're watching the square now live, and we'll keep you posted when they start tearing the city apart. Mel, I was looking at the screen behind her. She wasn't seeing what was going on. She was reading the teleprompter. Yeah. The people were praying. They were praying. They were dropping to their knees and putting their foreheads against the street, standing up, putting their hands up to the sky. They were praying. They weren't angry. Not at all. And she, she totally twisted what was actually happening on the screen. And I, I put my food down because I was watching while I was eating. I said, am I the only person in the world that sees this? What we are seeing is the resonance theory 
like I say in the book, Remembering the Future, the Physics of the Soul and Time Travel, resonance theory is practiced by the media in recycling this negative fear over and over and over and over again, trying to hit the nail or trying to obey resonance theory as I lay it out in the book so that it creates a negative situation. And you can surely do it, no question about it. And fear is a very... Very powerful. Hate's powerful, too. You can always find a group to hate with you. But there are lights. There are those people in the streets in Cairo, which are now in the streets in the Palestinian region, which are now in the streets in Bahrain, which are now in the streets in Wisconsin. And they're going to be in the streets all over this nation because they are the lights, and they're not going to bow to the fear. They're going to come out in nonviolence and say, enough is enough. I'm losing you a little bit, but hopefully uh, the bandwidth will come back. But anyway, not only were they praying, Brooks, there were Christians surrounding the Muslims who were praying, and they were protecting them from the police. And even some people were saying, we don't care if you're a Muslim, we don't care if you're a Christian or an atheist, you are our brothers, and we need to work for the common goal. That was a, a great moment, in my opinion. Yes, it was. That, that's what my friends who just got back last week, they were there during this. That's exactly what they said was happening on the streets. These are young, intelligent, educated young people, and they are, they are wanting to set up a republic, a representative government, not military, not religious. And of course, Algeria, maybe who knows, maybe Iran. So I said it when the Tunisian revolt was taking place, this will be a domino effect. And this man who, the self-immolation that he went through because the government came and took his produce. He was a produce vendor and he had to support his family, his kids, his brothers, his parents. And then they came again and they took his scale and his equipment. He couldn't take it anymore. And he lit himself on fire. And this is what's happening. Some people are saying there, there could be ulterior motives out there. Maybe we're getting rid of one puppet to put another puppet. What's your take on that? Well, I looked at the comments that were made in one of the side magazines where they interviewed uh, a couple of the youth. They didn't want to be identified by name. Sure. But they said, okay, we're going to take a little bit of a rest. Not everybody's going to leave the square, though. We're going to keep some people here. Now, the government, or the government, the military came out and said, we're going to take up to six months, you know, to try to get, uh, you know, government back in place. We're letting the parliament go. We're going to try and put these things together. Yeah. These young people said, the military needs to come out and tell us what they're doing. Because if they don't, we're not leaving. Right. They didn't. They haven't said anything yet? Well, I don't think they know what to say because these people are not used to thinking on their own. They're used to taking orders from the top, the entire country, from the military to the police to the, to the, the Department of Antiquities is all micromanaged from the top. Yep. Nobody in the middle ranks does any thinking. So this is brand new to them. They, they got to they gotta come up to speed and we got to give them the time to allow them to do that. It's a very paternalistic uh, society where even the last speech, Mubarak spoke to everybody as if uh, everyone was their children. But now going back to the sun, here's the, the headline, Solar Flare 2011, biggest sunstorm in four years past Earth. 
The biggest solar blast in four years erupted late Monday, and it's sending jets of charged particles right at Earth. The spray will spark bright auroras when it hits the magnetosphere in the next 24 to 48 hours. These are the most powerful flares since December of 2006. The sunspots have continued to let loose smaller flares and may still be active now. Spaceweather.com notes the sunspots didn't even exist one week ago and now cover a swatch of sun wider than Jupiter. What does this mean for us, Brooks? Well... You know, that's one of the things that NASA and JPL really spent a lot of money on. They knew that SOHO was not going to give them the information that they need. It's only online for a few hours a day. Then they have to bake it out because the sensors can't really take that much energy. So they really put together a great uh, array when they launched the Solar Dynamic Observatory, this, this stereo uh, unit that's up there now. Now they're able to take almost 360-degree pictures around the sun and, and patch them together. And now we're beginning to learn things about the sun's jet stream, about its internal flow of, of energy. And honestly, solar scientists are going back to kindergarten. They really don't know what to make in, about this. What they were hoping is that the sun would ramp up very slowly, very carefully, so that they could study it step by step. It's pouring so much data out that so many universities are working on it. Grants are being poured into universities to crunch data being created by the SDO. They don't know what to make of it. Now, when, when 1158 formed, that sunspot complex 1158, the one you're talking about, it started out on the far side of the, the sun uh, about four times the size of Earth. Within a day, it was... 100,000 kilometers across, which is formidable. And then it popped out an X-class flare. Now, it wasn't an X-9 like we had in 2004 and again in 2006, but that was solar cycle 23. Solar cycle 24 has been a sleeping giant. We just, it makes a little spurt and then goes away. It has a CME and goes away. We've seen proton counts down as low as 0.3 protons per cubic meter this is like nothing it's not even like having a sun up there as far as putting out charged particles now it's starting to come alive and what we said in volume three of the arc of millions of years is don't count out this solar cycle coming up when solar cycle 24 starts it's going to start slowly and then it is going to ramp straight up like a square wave to to right at maximum and it's going to stay there for about a year and a half we already had electromagnetic um, radiation strike our satellites and interrupt communications yesterday. In China, too. Yeah, that's just the beginning. That's just the beginning. These fancy auroras, these elliptical um, uh, solar halos that we're beginning to see, they're very rare. We've seen several of them in a row. This means that electromagnetic radiation is bending light. That's how powerful these solar storms are. So from here to 2012, do we expect this to continue magnifying? Yes. And what we need to do as a people, as, as earthlings, is we need to be aware of this and then not in fear, but in targeted intention. And we can do this because we've got a great system of communication like your program and others. We can get targeted intentions out to the people they can meditate on these things and push that back out into space. And I promise you, it has an effect. And here's an interesting factoid, folks. 
The English admiral and polar explorer Sir James Clark Ross is known for his discovery in 1831 of the North Magnetic Pole and his magnetic surveys of the Antarctic. They say, Brooks, the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. This is your great-great-grandfather, isn't he? Yes, great-great-grandfather. That's absolutely correct. And, and his ship, by the way, was locked in that ice for two years. He almost lost his life doing it. Tell me more about him. You know, he, as a young man, uh, a Scottish explorer, he was driven to explore. And he was also a scientist, which was kind of strange for the beginning of the 1800s. The actual, what we call the engineering renaissance, didn't occur until probably after uh, uh, the Civil War. But because of the dissemination of all kinds of ships and, you know, war has a tendency to drive uh, commerce globally. Yes. But prior to that, he was a great explorer. And he discovered the Ross Gull, which we still do not know why that little bird flies north in the wintertime. There's just no way it can survive Arctic temperatures, but it does. Somehow it survives what we think is 90 below zero up there on Arctic uh, temperatures. But it isn't built like a penguin. It's built like a seagull. It goes somewhere warm north. And I spoke to the leading ornithologist in Sweden. They still do not know where that gull goes in the wintertime. So he discovered that. He discovered the Ross Islands. He, uh, you know, he was 23 years old when he made a lot of these ventures. And he lived a very long life. So... Um, you know, when I put his picture up, when I make lectures about the uh, Inner-Earth Expedition and I put his picture up on the screen, I, I don't believe it. But people tell me that I look just like the guy, so I just throw my hands up and say, well, I'm back. <laughs> I don't know what to say about it. Well, that's why I said but, uh, <laughs> the, the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. Can you hear me okay? Because well, I'm losing you on your side. just want to make sure yeah. that you're hearing me okay. I, I can hear you fine. Okay. And this is internet radio. We're used to that. I, I, I know. I know. So, folks, I apologize if the sound is not the best, but sometimes bandwidth issues happen everywhere. Is the North Magnetic Pole in the same place from where it was discovered? Well, the answer is it's definitely not in the same place where he, he found it above the uh, San Yosef Islands uh, in Russian seas. It has moved, but it started moving slowly. Uh, we we started witnessing uh, what we call a magnetic wobble, where the North Magnetic Pole was kind of going back and forth a few meters a year. However, recently, it began taking off in a straight line toward Russia. It has moved so far that the first airports, especially the ones on the east coast of our country, down close toward the equator, like in Florida, Tampa to be exact, Yo. they're now sandblasting the numbers off the runway and changing the compass settings Yes, because the, the jets coming in are looking down at the numbers on the runway, looking at their compass and saying, uh, am I sure I'm on the right runway? Because this is off by several degrees. Right. You, these are the first airports to do it. Now, that, that magnetic north is moving in obedience to a, a Newtonian principle called the Coriolis effect. This is where the coordinate system begins to shift in a, a non-synchronous uh, gyroscope kind of environment, which is the Earth is. Now, that movement has been clocked at an astonishing 25 miles a year. Not 25 yards, not 25 inches, 
25 miles. That's across town yeah. every year, and it's accelerating. Has that been a constant 25 miles per year, or are there periods in which the speed has varied? There are lots of periods that the speed has varied. If we go way back, the poles completely shifted, north for south and south for north. If we go a few hundred years back, we can see shifts in the magnetic uh, rock where magma has come up out of the ground, especially in Greenland and frozen once it uh, goes from liquid state to solid state. We can look at the vignette of alignments of that magnetic field with the poles at the time that that magma came out. And we know the date of that because we can very accurately track that kind of formation. We know that the North Magnetic Pole has been moving very slowly at first and then more quickly and now more quickly. So what we are seeing is what we call a changing rate of change or an exponential or even logarithmic change. This is the precursor to a polar shift. That was my next question. What causes the speed to vary? And if it's moving this fast, does this mean that we're definitely getting ready for a pole shift? And if so, paint a picture of what we can expect if and when this occurs. Well, there are several things that precipitate a, a pole shift. One, of course, would be uh, a body uh, to which we're gravitationally tied that is going through regular pole shifts. And guess what? We are. Every 11 years, the sun swaps poles. And it's a whole lot larger than the Earth, and we're magnetically tied to it. The other thing is the introduction of another gravitational body into the field, like a free-floating planet passing close, which may have happened before, and, according to accounts, may happen very soon in the future. The other thing is that the two bodies, the core of the Earth and the crust of the Earth, go out of uh, sync with each other. They become disharmonious, and like playing two dissonant chords on a piano or a piano chord that's slightly out of tune. You hear that note on top of the note. That's the harmonic that's wobbling back and forth, back and forth. That's what makes the North Magnetic Pole unstable. And uh, if, if it becomes, if it goes over the edge, so to speak, and does a complete flip, you're talking a pole shift that it could occur not in thousands of years or hundreds of years, maybe tens of years or maybe even weeks it could occur. Now, what could you expect as far as effects on the Earth? Right. Um, there are lots and lots of life forms on the Earth that rely upon the flux lines of the Earth. That's the magnetic flux between the North and South Pole that travels around our planet for navigation, for respiration, even for procreation. They rely upon it. And if the uh, magnetic field becomes disrupted or becomes unreliable or realigned somehow, all of those life forms, fish, bacteria, birds, crabs, whales, all kinds of animals that use those magnetic fields for navigation become confused. And if it gets into the food chain, like food that we rely upon, which ultimately you wouldn't believe how far down the food chain these, these things go, uh, it can affect the, the flora and fauna of the earth. It can affect the bees that pollinate our, our plants. It can affect the germination of our seeds. It could make things flourish like a Garden of Eden, like it once was, or it could turn it into a wasteland. Pardon me. I knew that animals 
use the magnetic field for navigation, but I didn't know they also used the magnetic fields to pace their respiration. The blackbirds, ducks, doves, fish, crab, animals, they all travel in schools. Is that the common denominator here? I, I believe it is. You know, uh, recently, and I think those of you, those of your listeners that are listening, uh, are, have listened to the news recently, will re recall that we've had uh, blackbirds, which basically fly in like fish, like a school in the air. You see them all the time when, around cornfields and wheat fields and soybean fields. They don't migrate. They just uh, fly around and, and pick up the, the, the seeds and leftovers and crickets and things like that. Uh, these birds have been diving headlong into the ground in Arkansas and Texas and Louisiana and Italy. And it's not just blackbirds. It's ducks. It's doves. Um, and the Centers for Disease Control have has issued an inconclusive report. Yes, the birds that they picked up suffered trauma. You would, too, if you landed. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Miles an hour. Right. But one thing they did have in common is they all appeared to display the effects of altitude sickness, which means they stopped breathing. They were flying along, minding their own business. They stopped breathing and suffocated in mid-flight and dove into the ground unconscious. But why only one species of birds? I bet there, there are more in the area, but it's just this particular school of birds is the one that fell to the ground. It sounds as if it was targeted. Uh, yes, but you gotta you gotta think. Uh, I'm I think like a statistician. You know, ducks and doves and blackbirds fly in groups. Yes. Other birds like pigeons and hawks and stuff like that. They're more individual. They have their own path. They fly onesies, twosies, things like that. Uh, the other thing that I looked at was the areas that they fell. There's, they fell north to south. They fell uh, northern hemisphere, southern hemisphere. There was no mark of disease on them. Sick birds don't fly. I can tell you, if they're sick, they'll sit there and roost, and then they'll fall over dead. But they won't fly. Only healthy birds fly. And these birds were all in flight when, when they uh, had their effect. Targeted, it's possible. Um, I looked at HARP, you know, the High Frequency Active Auroral Research Project, yep. and uh, I made a few contacts, and the telltale two-meter ham signature was not there. So I thought, well, I guess we have to mark HARP out. We can't lay this one on HARP. There was no halo, there was no aurora, and there was no ham signature. So that doesn't mean that there aren't local uh, units that might be used but as far as from Alaska coming down into the Midwest and the lower Midwest and even the deep south the signature was not there well let me read to you a headline that came from South Dakota these are 5,000 birds it was initially believed that cold weather may have caused the birds deaths but the Yankton police received a call from the USDA, the United States Department of Agriculture, attesting that they had poisoned the birds at a feedlot 10 miles away. Apparently, some 5,000 of the birds were defecating in the feed meal, posing a threat to the animals and farm workers, when the USDA decided killing them would be the best action to take. A bait laced with the poison DRC-1339 was used, 
Though officials were surprised the birds made it so far before dying, they assured that poison dead birds do not pose a risk to nearby animals or humans. Could this have been the same that happened in Arkansas? Well, it could be, except that uh, the Centers for Disease Control, when they did toxicity reports, found no toxins in them. Right. And this toxin that they're talking about, they have to be very careful with it uh, because it is biodegradable. And the reason it has to be biodegradable is they don't know where the birds are going to die. And even if they do die locally, they're not sure they get them all. So that the birds can act, the dead birds can actually be consumed by other scavengers, possums and buzzards and things like that. And then those animals are consumed by other animals. So that poison begins to spread through the ecosystem. So the poison has to break down in a, in a, in a pretty quick manner. Like in 24 hours, it becomes non-toxic. I didn't know that about the poison. Uh, but that's not usually the way they take the birds out. Usually the way they take them out is with detergent because it has no effect on the ecology and it washes the oils off of the bird's feathers and they can't protect themselves against the cold and they die in a few hours of pneumonia. And uh, let me just, uh, a quick parenthesis, just to not forget the part about the, the uh, Tampa International Airport. They had to close down uh, at runway because they had to uh, repaint it. This is something you don't see in mainstream media. This is very important. Why is it not being disseminated more? I'm not really sure. I heard about it. I, I saw it on Drudge Report, which for me is mainstream news. That's about as close as I get to it. Okay, so Drudge did mention it because I, I only saw it in a local newspaper in Tampa. But anyways, the another animal die-off area on a farm in Wisconsin, 200 dead cows. Did you hear that one too? I didn't hear that one, no. Tell me about this one. This one, while the mystery of dead birds falling from the sky in South Dakota was quickly solved, similar mass animal deaths around the world remain enigmatic. 200 dead cows were recently found on a farm in Wisconsin with a disease or pneumonia suspected as the culprit. So once again, this is happening in Arkansas, Alabama, Louisiana, Kentucky, California, Italy, and Sweden. Mass fish death have been reported in Arkansas, Maryland, Chicago, New Zealand, and Brazil. And 40,000 crabs wash ashore beaches in England. And what I find strange is that they keep saying that these are all isolated events. But why is this happening more or less at the same time? I believe in January. I, that's what I find the most suspicious as, as a statistician, when you look at these things as mutually exclusive events, and then you start taking the odds of each of these events occurring, and then you take the realization that all of these mutually exclusive events occurred in sequence or almost on the same day or same week, you begin to multiply the odds together. It becomes astronomical. It's not enigmatic somebody needs to connect the dots here and we're doing it because we're 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 theorizing but i don't think we're bloviating at all i think we're intelligent people and we can read the handwriting on the wall and we're putting these things together and i think that intelligent people inside the government or uh, shall i say inside the agencies of the government because i'm not even sure we really have a government right but uh, they're smart too and they're putting it together, and they're pro they probably have better instruments and better stats than we do, and they're still not coming to us and telling us about it. Now, that I find very curious indeed. And I'm not a statistician, 
but I really don't see how they're not related. A coincidence only happens once, twice at the most. But so many times, I don't think it's a coincidence, and it makes you want to avoid chicken, fish, and beef for now, don't you think? I Yeah, exactly. And I, I can tell you, I am hired professionally in my job to go into plants that have had engineers beat their heads against these, what they call enigmatic uh, special causes in their processes. They have these quality problems flare up, and then they go away. And then they say, oh, well, gee, we fixed it. And then it'll come back. And I guess we didn't fix it. Okay, you're fired. Hire someone else. Right. And this is a cycle that they go through. So the, finally they hire me, and I go in and I say, okay, let me get, give, give me all your data from everything, your ovens, your conveyor belts, your bar barometric pressure, everything. I want all the data. And I put it all into a system. I begin to statistically analyze it, and I find out when things changed when they change the air compressor, when they, you know, different things. And I will, without even knowing anything about their real process, I can find the cause of their variation. And then I can even suggest some changes because I'm also an engineer on top of that. But that being said, there are other statisticians like me out there. They're, they're as skilled as I am. I took my classes from them and they can see this too. They could put these things together and they know I'm telling you, Mel, they know what the cause of this is, and they're not telling us. And if I go there, physically go there, and start gathering this data, they know I'm on it, it's, it's really going to put them in defense mode. And that leads me to chemtrails. You know, some people correlate this to chemtrails. Here in town, I've been doing a lot of observing, and... It seems now they stop one day and they come back the next day and they spray double than what they used to before. I don't need to tell you. The whole sky is blue, not a single cloud. The planes start coming in in the morning and by the afternoon, three or four o'clock in the afternoon, the whole sky is completely blocked. I may have discussed it with you last year, but have you looked into chemtrails? You know, I have uh, since since you talked to me about it because I wasn't a big believer. You know, I, I've been flying airplanes since I was a teenager and I at one time was in a position to purchase an airline and I learned a lot about the industry. I could tell you the fuel, the engines, the fuel management systems, they're all owned by different companies. Raytheon owns engines and they lease them to Delta and, you know, all in all, it's not the airplane companies that own their own motors. They lease the motors. They're rotables. They're, they're a commodity and they're traded like, like, like playing cards. But that being said, the FAA controls this stuff right down to the last O-ring. Nothing. I mean, nothing is allowed in that fuel. So when people started talking to me about chemtrails, I thought to myself, you know what? Nobody's putting anything in that fuel. That fuel is sampled all the time. The EPA comes down on it. The oil companies come down on it. The airport measures it. Nobody puts stuff in the fuel. That's not chemtrails. I thought it was. It's not. Chemtrails are actual chemicals that are sprayed out of nozzles right. from aircraft. Right, right. That's that's what I, I. Some people say that that they're mixing that in the fuel so they can piggyback in commercial airlines because the military or contractors don't have that many planes to do the job. 
but yes, they're like uh, they look like pitot tubes coming out of the uh, wings. Well, yeah, they're and I've I've been flying a lot. I I cross the country and the oceans quite a few times, and I I usually park myself behind the wing with a window seat, and I watch like a hawk. And I've flown over a million miles. I've never seen anything spray out of the wing of an airplane. That doesn't mean it's not happening. It just means it's not happening in commercial airliners. It's happening in other aircraft. And I have seen, uh, you know, two jet aircraft. What I know aircraft has uh, two engines on it. And yet I see four trails coming off the airplane. I know those are chemtrails. Many years ago, before I got married and my wife cut my wings, I used to fly. And then uh, John Kennedy Jr. unfortunately passed away. And and uh, she said to me, if Kennedy can die, so can you. So choose between me or flying. But anyway, I when I moved to Arizona, my instructor and I were flying one day. And it was really hot. So we landed in what's called Pinal Air Park. And I uh, said, can we just get off the plane and, and have a drink? And he said, no, if we do that, we'll get shot. And I wait a minute, where are we? This is, you don't want to know about this airport. And he started telling me about this airport where they found a Boeing 757 years before full of cocaine from the U.S. Forest Service. The CIA uses it for drills and Evergreen flies a lot of chemtrail planes from there. Have you heard about this airport? No, I haven't. Uh, I, I, I've heard of Mina, but I haven't heard of that one. No. This is, let's call it uh, Arizona's Mina, uh, not in Arkansas. But wow. speak, speaking of Arkansas, I also noticed that there were many earthquakes in Arkansas this week. Could this be a trigger for the New Madrid Fault? Yes, it could. That is right where the New Madrid Fault goes. It goes from there all the way up through Kentucky and Tennessee and goes to North Dakota. So all these things happening in North Dakota, plus the earthquakes, plus, as you said, the government has been buying a lot of, well, what is it, millions of body bags. They're buying, I don't know how much, in, in dry food. What are they preparing for? I mean, it seems that whenever they start doing some kind of drill, I mean, on 9-11 in the morning, they were doing terrorism drills and what happened. And then the day before the Haitian earthquake, they were doing disaster drills. Now they're preparing for something. What do you think is happening here? Well, uh, it's clear that somebody's spending a lot of money and doing a lot of preparation, taking these old uh, plants. Some of them are used to, uh, to ancient, not anciently, but historically, to refurbish old steam engines, uh, which we don't use anymore, and the diesel uh, engines don't require that kind of maintenance. But these are big facilities, and they have rail access, and they've been going in and building these large barbed wire fences around them, or fences with barbed wire at the top. But a uh, very strange thing is that the barbed wire at the top doesn't face the outside. It faces the inside. Right. And uh, the coffins that they're putting together are not for single bodies. They're for half a dozen bodies. And there are over half a million of them. And they're spread across actually just north of here where I'm at. And as uh, soon as it warms up a little bit, I'm good, definitely going to go out and take some photos of my own. I'm uh, roughly 90 miles north of the Gulf Coast and I've uh, been doing quite a bit of uh, research the last 40 days down here on, on the side. I'm not ready to report on it yet, but uh, it's going to be very interesting when I, when I publish what I found. What uh, kind of research are you doing, if you don't mind my asking? Well, I, I want to find out about uh, a 
a provision that has been in the in the uh, statute for quite a few years. What it empowers FEMA or whatever government assigned that they put to it, it could be the UN, is it allows for mass migration. It allows for mass evacuation back away from the coasts. Now, I have found I'm about 98 miles north of the Gulf right now where I'm at. And um, the tree damage at this point here is severe. I mean, trees were just broken off uh, in 2005 from Katrina. North, north of here, five miles, everything's fine. So it seems like 100 miles is about the limit from the coast as far as severe damage from a storm or some other event that could happen in the Gulf. So I'm doing my research inside the 100-mile band, and it's very interesting what I'm finding. How the government money is used is not to rebuild, it's to relocate. Mm. They're moving plants, they're moving houses, they're moving gas stations, they're moving grocery stores. Inside this 100-mile band, it is depopulating slowly, and it may not be happening fast enough for them. Do you just open a Pandora's box here, and we have to take our one and only intermission, Brooks. But when we come back, I want to talk to you about. But first of all, is this a re research that you have been commissioned to do, or is this something personal? Uh, I I'm never commissioned to do this kind of research. This is stuff I just wake up in the middle of the night saying, "Hmm, these things don't add up. Let's go get some evidence and see what we can find out." Good for you. You see, that's why I like people like Brooks, who's not an armchair admiral. He goes out there and experiences for all of us. But tell us once again how to get in touch with your work, how to buy your books, The Ark of Millions of Years, Volume 2, 2012, and The Harvest of the End Time, and the latest one, Remembering the Future, The Physics of the Soul, and Time Travel. All right, there are two main websites. The first that you mentioned is arcofmillionsofyears.com. That's A-R-K, like Noah's Ark, arcofmillionsofyears.com. There are actually three books. And a fourth is going to the publisher next month. So that volume set is what Forward Magazine calls the most comprehensive work ever done on the 2012 end times. We do sell it as a trilogy and you can get some discounts on it for shipping. The first two books come in audio as well. So if you're not a good reader, don't worry about it. I read it for you. Uh, the last book, Remembering the Future, is at rememberingthefuturebook.com. The reason it's named that is because I am also working on a screenplay, so there will be a movie as well. Uh, the book is um, all of the tools that you need to turn the law of attraction on for yourself. Take control, learn to use resonance theory and what we call the Phoenix sequence, which is a modification of the Fibonacci sequence, to make energy of your intention work for you. Remembering the future book.com. That one is also available on Kindle, Nook, and Audio. Folks, I hope you support Brooks because his work is just absolutely superb. I had the privilege and the honor to meet him last year in person. And when we come back from the break, I want to talk more about the Gulf oil spill. Some people have forgotten about it, but as you may know, and if you're in Mississippi right now, you may have heard of all the people who have fallen ill of all the chemicals that have been sprayed there. Once we come back, this is Mel Fabregas, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. If you're not a member, just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, and click on the subscribe link. 
to listen to the rest of the show. As a member, have you subscribed to the iTunes link? Let iTunes download all segments of each new show automatically. There's a link in the members section. Just click on it and let iTunes do the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more. Enjoy.
this is Jack Fresno of the Venus Project, and you're listening to the Veritas Show. <laughs> 